We all want to be part of something bigger than ourselves, something that both started before us and reaches beyond us. This summer, we look to the entire Bible to see God's mission in the world and how He calls His people to join Him in it. As we as a church look to beginning a new congregation, we turn towards the scriptures to see how God moves us out on mission. Join us this summer for a missional conversation. Good morning. If you're a kid pre-K to three years old, you may be dismissed for Holy Cross Kids. Our volunteers are in the back waiting for you. Also, if you're a kid at Holy Cross, on the back table in the corner here, you'll see a big blue sign that says Friendship Day, August 27th. And if you're the parent of a kid, um, pick up one of these flyers. It tells you more about what Friendship Day is on August 27th. And in a nutshell, that's just an opportunity for our kids to also join us as adults on mission in Uh, and helping our friends encounter Jesus, know Jesus, and show Jesus. Again, that's on the back table, and you can pick those up. And I think there's gummy worms on the back table also, um, because we're, you know, frankly, we're not above bribery, so. All right, well, welcome. We're glad glad that you're here today. Um, If you're visiting today, uh, you don't know that there's about 20 other people also visiting today, uh, which is really exciting to see. So welcome if you're visiting. If this is your first time at Holy Cross, uh, we're really glad to have you. So this summer at Holy Cross, we're taking time and we're working through a series that we're calling a missional conversation. And when we use the word mission, it's really common just to think in terms of uh, what, what Jeremy just prayed for, for Jill and Isabella, who are going on mission to Romania. We usually think in terms of, hey, somebody's going overseas. But uh, in, in Scripture, we actually see that all of us are called on mis- to go on mission with Jesus. And for most of us, what that looks like is being on mission with Jesus in our neighborhoods, in our cities, and just in our day-to-day lives. And so today... We're going to be looking at the words of Jesus in describing his particular mission on earth. Uh, So if you're able, if you'd stand with me, we're going to be reading from the book of Luke. It's in the New Testament. It's the third book in the New Testament. We're going to be looking at chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. And as Rick, or excuse me, as Jason already said, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we have a Bible uh, on the back table, and we would love for you to have that. Um, frankly, the stuff that's written in the Bible is way more powerful than anything that's going to come out of my mouth this morning. So we encourage you to take that Bible and read it because we believe it's actually powerful and that God uses it to change us. So let's read together. This is Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. He, this is Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. 
So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would be present this morning. We ask that your word would change us, that your Holy Spirit would be at work within us. I pray, Father, that you would use the things that I say to change us. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, so you, you know organizations, organizations have mission statements, right? Um, Amazon has a mission statement. Amazon's mission statement is to be Earth's, Earth's, that's a big mission statement, Earth's most customer-centric company to build a place where people can come to find and discover anything they want to buy online. That is an all-encompassing mission statement. And it occurs to me as I'm saying this, this is the second time in two sermons that I've mentioned Amazon, so that, I don't, I'm not sure what that says. Google's mission statement is to organize the world's information and to make it universally accessible and useful. I think they're, I think they're doing that. At Holy Cross, our mission is to help people encounter Jesus, know Jesus, and show Jesus. And in this text, we're going to look at Jesus' statement of his purpose of why he's here on earth. And this is what he says. I'm going to spoil it for you right now. Um, You can't leave right after I say this, but we're going to get back to it. This is what he says. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. But That statement comes at the very end of our passage today, so we're going to take a little bit of time first to engage with the passage before we get to what Jesus actually says. Um, So just some quick background first. We're in a book called Luke. Luke is written, shockingly enough, by a guy named Luke. Uh, he's a physician, but he's more than that. He's, he's also an extremely well-educated man, and he's writing in about 60 A.D., so about 30 years after Jesus died. One of the reasons we know he's really well-educated, if you love English and if you love literature, just read through the book of Luke. It has, it's the most literarily diverse book in the New Testament, and one of the most literally diverse in the whole Bible. It's got poetry in there, it's got narrative, uh, it's got a bunch of other stuff, but I wasn't an English major, so I wouldn't know about those things. Um, So that's a little background, but to narrow our focus a little bit to this particular story that we're going to look at, um, the setting begins in a really public place on a roadside, Okay. And we've, it's the summer, so we've all probably been to some kind of parade at some point this summer. So picture you're standing on a roadside, there's a bunch of people there, and instead of waiting for like a bunch of floats, you're waiting for this guy who's relatively recently become really well-known. His name is Jesus. So it begins in this public place, and it ends, the story ends in a much more intimate setting. It actually ends in Zacchaeus' house. So that's a general setting. 
and then the characters. You, you can look at the story really quickly, and you can, okay, there's, there's Zacchaeus, uh, and, there's, uh, and there's Jesus. Those are the characters. But there's a third character that you can miss, and that's the crowd. And the crowd in this story essentially serves as a foil to draw out what Luke wants to teach us from this story. So pay attention as we're going through this to what the crowd is doing. Okay, so let's look at Zacchaeus. Um, as we go through to this morning, we're going to look at um, the setting, which we've kind of already done, and then the characters. We're going to look at the meeting of Jesus and Zacchaeus, and then we're going to look at the response. So Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. Um, straw poll real quick. When you were a little kid and somebody asked you, um, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? Um, did anyone in here raise their hand and say, hey, I would, man, I just feel like God is calling me, or I just, I feel like I'm gifted to be an IRS agent. Um, you know, I just feel like that would really fulfill me and give me a lot of meaning in my life um, and really give me a lot of esteem and repute in the eyes of my friends. Um, said no one ever. But, but not a whole lot has changed in 2,000 years because Zacchaeus is a tax collector and he is universally despised. Hope, uh, you know, Hopefully we don't treat IRS agents that way. But in this time period, the first century, tax collectors were universally despised. And this is why. Because the Jews at this time were living under Roman rule. And, and like most conquering countries, they taxed the people who lived under their rule. And so the Jews were being taxed by the Romans... But the Romans didn't collect that tax themselves. They hired Jewish contractors to actually collect the tax. So Zacchaeus is a Jew. He's working for the Romans to collect taxes from his own people. And on top of that, tax collectors also made a common practice of collecting more than what the Romans actually asked for. So in common day parlance, what this would look like is, um, you know, Uh, You're sitting beside a guy in church, he happens to be an IRS agent, and on April 15th he shows up at your door and he says, hey man, uh, Uncle Sam said um, you owe $5,000 in taxes, and I'd really like a new boat this summer, so if you could just add $2,000 on top of that, that would be great, and these gentlemen behind me with guns are going to make sure that, uh, you know, you settle up with me, okay? Um, So that's what it was like. It wasn't just that they were, Zacchaeus was collect, collecting taxes from his own people. He was also taking more. He was extorting his own people for his own personal gain. The Jewish law that was written at that time actually gave permission to the Jews to treat tax collectors as less than human. Okay, less than human. Uh, N.T. Wright, who's an old, or excuse me, a New Testament scholar, says that uh, the the tax collectors were the moral equivalent of someone who had leprosy, a leper, complete outcast in society. All right? So Zacchaeus is a tax collector, and he's getting rich doing this. And we could kind of gloss over that and say, okay, he's rich, let's move on. But that's an important detail that Luke includes because one chapter earlier, Luke talks about another rich guy that Jesus encounters. And in that story, the rich guy comes to Jesus and he says, hey, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
And Jesus says, you know the law, and he lists most of the Ten Commandments. And the guy says, I have kept all of these from my youth. And Jesus says, one thing you still lack, sell everything that you own, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. And the last we see of the tax collector is he's walking away sadly because he was very wealthy. And Jesus says how difficult it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And of course, the people who are standing around here, around him listening, are like, oh my gosh, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So keep that story of that rich man in the back of your mind because we're about to deal with another rich man here. One more little detail about Zacchaeus. He says, Luke tells us Zacchaeus is short. Again, we could kind of treat this as a throwaway detail. Why do you include this, Luke? But we've got short people in this room. Some of you are short people. Not a crime. But you know, if you're a short person, the experience of being in a crowd of people, and it's a little obnoxious. You're the person standing on a chair. If you're a kid, I can't see the words. You need to stand on a chair. You're the person trying to get to the front of the crowd. And most of the time, your experience probably is, hey, do you mind if I stand in front of you? Yeah, 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 go ahead. I mean, you know, no big deal. No, no skin off my nose for the short person to stand in front of me. Unless the crowd hates the short person. And they did hate Zacchaeus. That's why he's, he ends up in a tree. The crowd hates Zacchaeus. And as we see in, we're going to see in a minute, um, they verbally express that. So Zacchaeus wants to see who Jesus is, and he kind of humiliates himself in order to do that. He's an adult male. He has some standing. I mean, he has wealth. He has some influence and power in his culture. Uh, but he's going to go climb a tree. This is the equivalent of, like, you know, the delegate in our area, Dickie Bell, like, you stand at the 4th of July parade, and Dickie Bell's up in the tree behind you, like, in a suit. Um, that's the kind of, kind of humiliation that Zacchaeus is, in, is willing to do so that he can see Jesus. All right, so that's the scene. The meeting. So Jesus is approaching. Zacchaeus is up in the tree. And in an instant... The roles reverse, because what has been happening up to this point? Zacchaeus has been pursuing just a glimpse of Jesus to see who he was. And in a second, Zacchaeus goes from being the pursuer to the pursued. Because Jesus looks up and in this midst of the crowd of people, picks out Zacchaeus and begins, begins pursuing a relationship with Zacchaeus. And he's not just pursuing like a hello or a handshake. He's pursuing intimate relationship. And it's hard for us today to even have any kind of comparison for this. Okay, so I'm going to try to help you, okay? We're in a gym, okay? So if you're an adult, rewind to when you're in school. And if you're a kid, you're there already. You're in a school-wide assembly, and LeBron James is speaking at your school's assembly. Or... Um, you know, Taylor Swift is speaking at your school's assembly. And you're sitting with your buddies, and over to the side is the guy that everybody hates. 
And it's not just because he's not cool. He's actually mean. Like, you've got a reason to hate him. And in the middle of the assembly, LeBron or Taylor looks out at the crowd, sees that outcast guy, comes down off the stage, walks out to him and says, hey, why don't, why don't we go back to your place? We can play Xbox, shoot some hoops, put on some YouTube videos and sing along to some of my songs. Like, I want, I want to know you. Like, I would really love to get to know you. You know what's going on in that person's head in that moment? Do they care that everyone else in that gym hates them? No. Like, the biggest celebrity in the world, the Instagram person with, like, 800 million followers, like, has just walked out in the crowd and singled them out to have a relationship with. That's as close as I could get to what this might be like. When Jesus says, I must stay at your house today, New Testament scholars point out, this means that Jesus is going to have a meal with Zacchaeus. Not a big deal for us, but in this culture, when you sat down at a table in your house to have a meal with someone, you were saying, I am willing to enter into relationship with you and deep, intimate relationship with you. That's one thing that's signified every Sunday when we come up here to take communion. It's Jesus inviting us to his table as his friends and saying, I want to have relationship with you. Enter into relationship with me. Uh, Tim Keller, who's the pastor of Presbyterian Church up in New York City, he observes Zacchaeus would have known exactly what was going on. Okay? He knows that for Jesus to do what he's doing, and Jesus is saying, Zacchaeus, I want to be in close relationship with you. I want to be part of your life, and I want it so badly that I'm willing to endure the scorn and the ridicule of this whole crowd of people. What he doesn't say is, is this, but he'll say it later in his life. He'll say, and I want it so badly that I am willing to give my life for you and for every other tax collector, and I'll hang on a cross. I will hang in a tree instead of you, and I will feel the scorn of the entire world. So how would you respond if you were the dude in the assembly or or if you were Zacchaeus? You'd respond joyfully, and that's exactly what Zacchaeus does. For, For years, he's experienced nothing but disdain and scorn and hatred, but, but now Jesus is coming to dinner, and his world has been invaded. You know, Zacchaeus has been living in this little bubble, and everybody outside that bubble is pointing to him and accusing him and condemning him. And Jesus, in a moment, pops that bubble and walks into Zacchaeus' world, not with accusation, not with condemnation, but with acceptance and with love. It changes Zacchaeus. That's how Zacchaeus responds. Let's look at the crowd. The crowd's really a, they're a gracious bunch of people. They say, he has gone in to be the guest of a sinner. It says the crowd grumbles. The crowd grumbles. He has gone in to be the guest of a sinner. Crowds are fickle. Five minutes ago, yay, Jesus is coming to town. I can't wait to see Jesus. He has gone in to be the guest of a sinner. Total reversal on the part of the crowd. 
Zacchaeus' response to the crowd. Zacchaeus hears the crowd, and he stands up. He says, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. If I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. One thing that's really important to note here, Zacchaeus' response only comes after Jesus moves into his world. Okay? This is not Zacchaeus trying to buy Jesus' approval. It's only after Jesus loves him and accepts him that Zacchaeus exhibits a changed heart. What Zacchaeus says is, we can miss it, but what he says is also really significant. He says, I'm going to give half of my wealth to the poor. Now, Zacchaeus is a Jew. He lives according to the law, or at least he should be. He knows the law. The Jewish law said that you should give 10% to the poor. So Zacchaeus is going, I'm going to do half, okay? Jewish law also said, if you steal something from someone, then you need to repay that 100% plus an additional 20%. And Zacchaeus is going 400%. If I've stolen anything, I'm going to repay it 400%. Think about this. Zacchaeus has been willing to endure hatred, ridicule, scorn, mockery for years because he loves money so much. He would rather be hated by people and have his money. But in a second, when Jesus shows up on the scene and accepts Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus goes, (laughs) he's changed from the inside out. And he just goes, I can't, this stuff doesn't mean anything to me anymore. I can give it away because I have found something so much more valuable than, than this money. And Jesus' response, Jesus says, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Why has salvation, why has salvation come to this house? Because Jesus came to the house. Because Jesus came to the house. Where Jesus is, that's where salvation is. If you've been thinking about Pokemon Go for the last 20 minutes, just come back um, and re-engage with us here. So Jesus' final words in this story are, I came to seek and to save the lost. There's two important words in that sentence that, that kind of beg two important questions, salvation and lost. And the questions are, if we experience salvation, what are we saved from? What are we saved for? And what does it mean to be lost? So salvation in the New Testament, and in Luke particularly, is understood as meaning acceptance by God and forgiveness by God of sinners. And as a result, an escape from God's punishment. And lost essentially refers to those people who are not in relationship with God. In the New Testament, it also, interestingly, also commonly refers to um, people who are outcasts or on the margins of society, like Zacchaeus was. Um, 
So salvation and lost are referring not to just temporal realities, but also eternal realities. Because here's the thing. The Bible clearly teaches that for those who are apart from Jesus, for those who are not in a relationship with Jesus, there is actually a real place, an eternal place of suffering. And, and we call that place hell. And the Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of specifics about it. It does tell us, it uses words to describe hell, like weeping and gnashing of teeth, anguish, torment, and flame. Jesus actually talks more about hell in the New Testament than anyone else. And he actually talks about more about hell than he does about heaven. If, if you like the Jesus of the Bible that kind of tells the warm, fuzzy stories and talks a lot about love and all those things, you don't get to just put these uncomfortable things aside. You also have to deal with those things. And this is something that Jesus is really clear about. And this should tell us something, right? Okay, so Jesus, long-haired, robe-wearing, hippie Jesus, talks a lot about hell. And he warns people. Most of the time, he's warning people. I'm going to read you one passage where Jesus warns people. It's from Matthew 25. Jesus is talking about the final judgment when he returns. And he says, Before me will be gathered all the nations, and I will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Then the king will say to the sheep, Come, you who are blessed by my father. And he will say to the goats, Depart from me into the eternal fire, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Friends, it is it's unpopular to talk about God's judgment and to talk about hell. It's viewed as it's viewed as unkind, it's viewed as unloving to say that, hey, if you don't know Jesus, you will suffer. But logically, if we say we know Jesus loves people. If Jesus loves people and yet he decides to talk about these things, then we can only conclude that it's actually a loving thing to share with people the realities, the eternal realities of what it means to be separate from Jesus. When I was 15 years old, I was sitting in a room not too different from this. And there was this preacher, um, I'll say fire and brimstone preacher. And if you grew up in certain churches, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And he is up there, he's talking about how terrible hell is going to be. He's going on and on and on about how, ter- how terrible hell is going to be. And at that point in my life, I was, I was terrified of dying. I was so afraid of dying Some of you have minivans. I was so afraid of dying that I would sit in the middle of the middle seat of our minivan. So if we were in an accident, I would be as protected as possible. I remember there were times in eighth and ninth grade 
where I would literally have to choke back tears just to get in the car because I knew, I knew that if I died, I did not know Jesus and I was going to go to hell. And I am so thankful that 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 preacher preached about hell and then gave me an opportunity to receive the love of Jesus. And he broke me. When I met Jesus, he changed me from a hateful, spiteful, angry ninth grader. And quite a few of you in here knew me as an eighth and ninth grader. Um, Everett, our bass player in particular. And he can tell you that's what I was like. And he changed me into somebody who actually loved people and actually cared about people. We see a similar change in Zacchaeus. So Holy Cross application here. We are called to mission. This is a missional conversation that we're having this summer. Let me back up about three chapters. And really quickly, I'm going to give you like a 30-second overview of the past three chapters. First, if you're going to enter into conversation with somebody about Jesus, I wouldn't recommend beginning with hell. Like, build relationship. You can, there's, there's lots of other ways. I came to Jesus because I was afraid of going to hell. Some people come to Jesus because they hear about the love of Jesus, and that changes them. That's what happened to Zacchaeus. Okay, back up three chapters. Luke 15 contains the story of the prodigal son. And this is a guy who spent his father's inheritance, had absolutely nothing, comes begging back to his father and says, make me like, make me like one of your servants. I'm not even worthy to be one of your sons. And the father says, I'm going to throw a party for you. Here's my nicest robe. You're my son. I love you. In chapter 18, just one chapter before this, Jesus talks about a widow, helpless in this culture, absolutely helpless. She seeks justice, and she finally gets it. She has nothing. He tells about a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee approaches God and says, this is all the good stuff I've done. And the tax collector won't even approach God, stands far off and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And at the end of that story, Jesus says, it's the tax collector who went away justified that day, not the good moral Pharisee. The next story in chapter 18 is about little children. The little children are coming to Jesus, and Jesus welcomes them, and he says, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you have to be like one of these little children. Little children are helpless. And then comes the story of the rich ruler. We've already talked about that. He presents to Jesus, I've kept all of the commandments from my youth. And Jesus says, you still lack one thing. And he goes away sad. And the final story, before we get to Zacchaeus, is of a blind beggar. He's on the side of the road, and he's crying out to Jesus, Jesus, have mercy on me. And Jesus heals him. So this is the, there's a theme here. The prodigal son had nothing to offer his dad, but he was accepted. The beggar was helpless, complete social outcast. He was accepted. The widow was helpless, 
she was accepted. Small children are helpless. Jesus accepted them. The blind beggar was helpless. Jesus accepted him. And Zacchaeus, likewise, had nothing to offer. He had no moral good. Everybody knew that he was a terrible person. And Jesus accepted him. Jesus, over and over and over, is making this point. If you think that you're moral, if you think that you're good, this is hard to hear, then I didn't come for you. If you think that you're good, I didn't come for you. If you think you've got it together, then then why do you need me? But he says, if you know you're helpless, if you know you can offer me nothing, if you're lost sheep, if you're a prodigal son, if you're the helpless beggar, and you're crying out to me, God, have mercy on me, I came for you. So if you, if you don't know Jesus, if this is your first Sunday here, then maybe you're going, whoa, this is heavy stuff. If this is the sixth year that you've been sitting here, or if you've been here for exactly six months, maybe Friendship Sunday six months ago was your first Sunday here, then Jesus is inviting you into relationship. And the only thing he asks is that you come to him like the beggar and like the child and say, I've got nothing. I've nothing to offer you. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus loves to accept people like that. Holy Cross, as we move out onto mission in our neighborhoods and cities, let me get real practical here, okay? Things that you can be doing as you move out on mission. One, pray that God would give you the opportunity to share the gospel with someone. I promise you, if you are praying that, it will happen. I have seen it happen in my own life in ways I didn't expect. It will happen. Number two, be in relationship with people who do not know Jesus. You've heard Rick say this multiple times over the past several months. Uh, You know, all cards on the table. Um, Full disclosure, when Rick said that a few months ago, I did a kind of mental inventory and I went, I have one person in my life who doesn't know Jesus, who I actually am in regular relationship with. And then about a month ago, a guy I know at the Y said, hey, do you still play soccer? I was like, well, define still. I mean, it's been like 15 years. And he's like, hey, um, you know, we need a goalie for our soccer team. You want to play on our soccer team? And initially I said no, because I was like, I'm too busy. I was, I was too busy with church stuff. So I looked at my schedule when I got home, and I realized I can make this work. So now I'm playing on a soccer team for the first time in 15 years with a bunch of guys um, who really need to know about Jesus. And I'm sore also. (laughs) Um, All right. I might be stepping on toes here. Small groups. We love getting together with our small groups and hanging out with our small groups. It's the core of who Holy Cross is. Get fed on Sunday morning and get fed with your small group when you meet together during the week. But when you have a cookout this summer... Instead of going to your small group cookout, have one at your house and invite your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers. And if we look at who Jesus hangs out with, 
we should probably be inviting like the most morally destitute people that we know. Because Jesus loves to save those people. All right. Go into it with a plan. There's, there's two approaches here. When you, when you start to share the gospel with somebody, one, go into it with a plan. Have some idea of what you're going to say. Hey, friend, will, will you come sit with me on Sunday morning? A lot of you are here this morning because somebody invited you. Friend, will you come to my small group gathering? Kids. Kids. Hey. Hey, man, my, my church is doing this thing on August 27th. It's going to be great. Will you come to that with me? Can I, tell you about the, can I tell you about the difference that Jesus made in my life? That story that I just told you about me coming to know Jesus, it's just a story. It's just part of my life. It's not hard to talk about. Except it is. Because I'm mentioning the name Jesus. And I'm actually talking about realities of being saved and needing a savior. Because the reality is, we can have a plan, but if we never actually talk to people about Jesus, the best plan in the world doesn't do us any good. Wealth, wealth had absolutely captivated Zacchaeus's heart, such that he was willing to go through years of hatred just so he could have his, his little nest egg, or his big nest egg, whatever. Okay? But when Jesus showed up in Zacchaeus's life, Zacchaeus said, Jesus has captivated my heart now. He was freed to love people instead of loving his stuff. The greatest reality in his life was Jesus loves me. In a similar way, most of our hearts are captivated by something. And if you're a Christian today, um, your heart's captivated by Jesus But you know what? I think it's also probably captivated by a lot of other things. And and for me, it's, I love the approval of people. And I think that's probably true to some degree for all of us. And that's what keeps us from actually speaking the name of Jesus and sharing Jesus with people. You know, Jesus is great in everything. I know he loves me. I know he died for me. But, you know, there are people that I need to keep as my friends. In one way or another, we're probably a captive to the approval of people. But let this happen instead. Experience the love of Jesus. Jesus coming down off that stage, entering into your life, saying, hey, let's go have dinner at your house. And in that moment, knowing that nothing else matters, that the opinions of other people don't matter. And not only that, that if you share the gospel with somebody and you get ridiculed, Jesus is there with you. He's bearing that shame and that ridicule with you. And he has shown us that. He showed us that with Zacchaeus, and he showed us that on the cross. So if you're a Christian today, let the love of Jesus captivate you and then move you out on mission. And if you, if you don't know Jesus today, the call, frankly, is the same to you. Let the love of Jesus captivate you and change you. Let's pray. Father, you are good to us and you are merciful to us. Um, and you do change us because of your great love for us. Father, um, 
you talk a lot about your love in Scripture, but you also talk about um, the consequences for those who are not in relationship with you. Father, I pray for those who do not know you this morning, that you would draw them into relationship with yourself, that you would captivate them with your love. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.